This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. never get tired of playing that little piece of music on this program. That is, of course, the theme song to the 1960s television program Lost in Space. It comes from John Williams, the illustrious composer of Star Wars and so many other themes that are familiar to us. It is undeniably a nice little piece of music. If only the television show had risen to its level. My understanding is they started out with some very big ideas for that program. They spent uh, an enormous sum on the pilot, I believe. But it wasn't long before the wheels came off. And it morphed from a show about a family, reminiscent of the Swiss family Robinson, going off into space. They were even called the Robinsons. With an evil hitchhiker on board the spacecraft, Dr. Smith. And devolved into a kind of a situation comedy featuring... Actor Billy Moomy as the young boy among the Robinson family. Dr. Smith, played by the overacting Jonathan Harris, and a goofy robot. We do not necessarily recommend that you look up this program and, uh, and, and watch these episodes. Unless, of course, you're a fan of really bad acting. In which case, Jonathan Harris will deliver every week. No, instead what you should do is follow Radio Parallax as we get lost in space which we like to do on a regular basis. Today, to help us in our voyages, is astronomer Phil Plate. He can currently be found contributing the bad astronomy column in sci-fi.com. That's S-Y-F-Y.com. Knowing that one of his articles might be of interest to me, whenever AI drives my cell phone, uh, placed one of the pieces onto my news feed. And, uh, well, they, they got it right on this occasion. And rather than rehash uh, all of what that was about, let's instead proceed to our interview with Phil Plate. Astronomer Phil Plate makes our list of people who do a great job helping science reach the man or woman on the street, alongside Neil deGrasse Tyson, Ira Flato, Bill Nye, Sam Keen, and others. We spoke to him some years ago in regards to some bad astronomy. His efforts to counter silliness in science have gained him a reputation as the go-to guy to clean up nonsense in astronomy. But a recent article on strange phenomenon he published makes us want to bring him back and talk about some good astronomy and, and perhaps along the way some of the bad. It's our privilege to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Phil Plate. Hi, thanks, Doug. Now, one of the astronomy magazines mentioned some time back this thing about auroras being out on some possible brown dwarfs, and I thought that seemed kind of odd to me when I read that. But then I stumbled on your piece, explained just how odd this whole thing really is. It really kind of surprised me, and makes me want to talk to you about the, the strangeness of auroras on, on, you know, which are the northern lights on Earth turning up out in deep space. Yeah, I got to say, when I read the uh, when I read the press release and the, the the research journal article on this, I was pretty surprised. And one of the things about trying to explain this is that there's a lot of pieces to it. But the most important piece is that 
there are these objects out in space called brown dwarfs, and they're, they're sort of halfway between planets and stars. They're bigger and more massive than planets, but they're not quite big enough to really be stars. They're kind of star-like, they're kind of planet-like, depends on what you're looking at. These objects have been theorized for a long time, but the first ones weren't found until, like, the 1990s. That's how hard they are to detect. Um, but now we know lots of them, and they're out there floating in space. Now, we have a lot of ideas about how they should behave, whether they're warm or cold, big or small or whatever. And one of the ideas is that they might have a magnetic field. Now, the Earth has a magnetic field. You know, if you go out and you, you go to a, a toy store or something and buy a bar magnet, mm -hmm. the Earth has a magnetic field that's kind of like that. There's a North Pole and a South Pole, and, you know, you can wiggle it under a piece of paper with iron filings and move them around. And one of the things the Earth's magnetic field does is as the sun emits its solar wind, which is a stream of subatomic particles, protons and electrons and stuff like that, the magnetic field of the Earth acts like a net and catches them and funnels them down toward the planet. They slam into the atmosphere and they cause our air to glow, and that's what we call the aurora, the, the northern and southern lights. Well, could this happen on a brown dwarf? And there were a lot of people who said, yeah, probably not. We don't think they have a strong enough magnetic field. And what this new discovery is is... Yeah, in fact, we have detected an aurora around a brown dwarf. And I guess this is detected by a very, very distinctive type of, of radio emissions that, that, that we pick up. Yeah, we, we observe the, the heavens in a lot of different ways, with a lot of different kinds of light. You can look in visible light, the kind we see, and X-rays, gamma rays, and radio waves. And we use radio waves a lot because they're really, uh, really convenient for conveying information across space. And different objects emit radio waves in different ways. It's, it's kind of like when you're in your car and you're fiddling with the radio dial and you change it from one station to another. Down at one end of the dial, you know, you had talk shows and that sort of thing. And at the other end, you have your hard rock and uh -huh. modern rock and all that kind of stuff. Well, galaxies and stars and planets and brown dwarfs emit radio waves in different ways. And there's this one brown dwarf. And get this, it has this really ridiculously long name. SIMP J01365663 plus 0933473. That's a, basically it's a catalog name plus its coordinates on the sky. Uh -huh. But this one is emitting radio waves, and it's emitting them in such a way that it, it makes sense that it's actually an aurora, that something is blasting subatomic particles at this thing. It's using its magnetic field to sweep them up, draw them in, and slam them into the atmosphere. That whole process is what's generating the radio waves, and that's a surprise. And the reason is this object is isolated. It's just sitting out there in space. It's not orbiting another star. So there's no solar wind blowing past this thing for it to catch. So even though you might say, well, you know, sure, brown dwarfs have magnetic fields. Sure, it can do all this stuff. The question is, what's the source? It's like being in the Sahara Desert and suddenly there's a flood and you're like, wait, what? Where'd this water come from? Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing. Wait, what? Where's the solar wind coming from? And one of the ideas here is that this brown dwarf might have, might, to be clear, have um, something orbiting it, a planet-sized moon or a smaller moon. And as this thing is going around it, the magnetic field from the brown dwarf is actually ripping material off of it and drawing it in, and that's what's causing the aurora. We see this happen with Jupiter and its moons, so it's entirely possible that that's what's going on here. Of course, this, this other object is way too small and faint for us to see, but it's, it's pretty cool. We've never seen a system like this before. This opens up the possibility that we may be able to use uh, this sort of thing to locate moons orbiting brown dwarfs or, or perhaps planets. This really gets interesting when you say that this object appears to be quite small, 
and perhaps isn't a brown dwarf at all, but, and, and might be a rogue planet out there. That's right. This is an interesting object. We, we know that brown dwarfs come in different sizes and masses out there. Uh, and this one was thought to be um, an old, fairly massive object. Well, then it turns out it's not. It's part of a group of other objects, and we were able to figure out how old those objects are, something like 200 million years, which for astronomers is, is young. That means that this object is a lot lower mass than we thought. So it may not be a brown dwarf at all. It might be like an object bigger than Jupiter, more massive than Jupiter, but not enough to call it a brown dwarf. This thing might actually be a rogue planet. It may have formed around a star just like our planet did, and something happened to eject it into interstellar space. And, and we know this happens. We've detected rogue planets before over millions and billions of years. Planets can move around in the solar system. It's a very slow process, and it tends to happen when the, uh, when the system is very young. Like, you know, we're not expecting this to happen in our solar system anytime soon. But it probably happened billions of years ago. And as the planets jostle around, one of them can be ejected into space. That might be the case here, in which, which case we have a rogue planet with a moon floating out there in space, and we only figured this all out because it is giving off uh, emission like an aurora. Very cool. I do have one question. The, the, I guess there's this dividing line between a planet and a, and a brown dwarf at like 13 Jupiter's masses, and some of the math, I think, in your article and elsewhere said, well, this may be only a little under that. How do you know? How do you, how do you get a meeting on the mass of this thing? <laughs> That's a really, really good question, and if you can answer that, please publish it in the Astrophysical <laughs> Journal. Um, I've studied brown dwarfs, and the theory behind these things is pretty complicated. If you start to add mass to a planet, it doesn't just get bigger. Uh, really strange stuff starts to happen to it as it gets more massive. Eventually, if you pile up enough, thermonuclear fusion will ignite in the core. This is what powers a star. And so the, the upper limit of a brown dwarf is when that happens, and it becomes an actual star. And we know pretty well how that works. There's a fuzzy boundary there. There can be objects that look very much like a brown dwarf, very much like stars, sort of fuzzy in between them. Um, but it's a narrow range. So basically, you get big enough, you become a star. But that range at the lower end, where if you take a brown dwarf and remove mass, when does it become a planet? If you take a planet and add mass, when does it become a brown dwarf? It's not so clear. There's all kinds of weird physics, quantum mechanics that comes in. And so it's around mm, 13 times the mass of Jupiter. If you had 13 Jupiters and squished them together you'd have something that looks very much like a brown dwarf, but it still has a lot of the characteristics of a planet. At 20 or 30 times the mass of Jupiter, clearly a brown dwarf. At you know, 8 times the mass of Jupiter, clearly a planet. This thing falls in that range where things are fuzzy, so it's really hard to tell. Oh, and uh, now that I think about it, you ask me how you tell this. It's actually really hard. If you, yeah. if you know how old this thing is, if it's part of a group of stars or something that we know the age of, how bright it is tells you how massive it is, because a massive object is much hotter than a lower mass object. A lower mass object is, tends to cool much faster. So you can kind of measure the mass by how hot it is. But it's, it's not a great way to do it. I mean, we can only get so accurate with that method. If we can find objects that have moons or planets orbiting them, that would help us a lot, because then we could use the gravity to figure out how massive it is. But right now, I mean, we're doing better than guessing. Yeah. But it's, it's certainly less than knowing how massive yeah. these objects are. Well, just as an aside to all of this, it may surprise some of our listeners to realize that, uh, that our own gas giant planets out in our solar system, they have 
some quite dramatic auroras. And in the case of Jupiter, which has a, a whale of a, of a strong magnetic field, a lot of that comes from, from its moon, Io, which is spewing out volcanoes uh, of, of sulfur and charged particles, and that's contributing to its aurora. I, I found that rather interesting. Yeah, that's right. Jupiter's magnetic field just completely dwarfs the Earth's. It's, it's incredibly strong and incredibly huge, and it basically whips past its moons. Jupiter spins very rapidly, much faster than the moon's orbit. So this magnetic field is basically slamming into these moons from behind. And in the case of, of Io or Eo, you know, people I've heard it pronounced both ways, it's incredibly volcanic and it spews sulfur up into space. And yeah. those sulfur atoms are swept up by the magnetic field. They fall back down onto Jupiter. And you can go on Google or whatever and search for Jupiter Aurora or Saturn Aurora. There are plenty of Hubble pictures of them. Yeah. Uh, and that's basically what it is. It's the magnetic field of those planets sweeping up these particles, drawing them down into the planet, slamming into their atmosphere, and causing it to glow. It's gorgeous. Well, when it comes to bad astronomy versus good astronomy, there's one little news item that's popped up of late that's, I think, sort of straddling it. They now think, based on a lot of observations, that Barnard Star, the second closest star, I mean, that's closest is the Alpha Centauri triple system, but the closest single star to us, six light years away, is now thought to have a planet. Some decades ago, um, an astronomer said he thought he'd found a planet, and they said, no, you're wrong. But it's back on again. So where, where, where does this come down? I should mention, too, that this somebody called this the great white whale of planet hunting, the, the possibility of a, of a planet at Barnard Star. Yeah, this is really exciting news, because the first planets were discovered around other stars in the, the mid-1990s, roughly. And up until then, we did not know if any other stars in the universe had planets. And we tried uh, for decades to look for planets around nearby stars. There are a lot of different ways to do this, but it's really, really super hard. Now, Barnard's star is a little low-mass red dwarf. It's, it's a star like the sun, but it's much cooler and smaller, uh, and that makes it much, much fainter. So it's, it's kind of hard to observe. People have looked for planets around Barnard's star for a long time, but... The detections have always been kind of marginal. Nobody's really sure. And now, finally, uh, we got it. We, we know for sure that there is a planet orbiting Barnard Star. It's what we call a super-Earth. It's about three times more massive than the Earth, and it, it may be actually more than that. And it takes about 230 days to orbit the star once. So it's got a year that is a little bit shorter than ours, about half, you know, half the length or two-thirds or whatever of an Earth year. Now, Barnard star is only six light years away, and, and that's one of the reasons this is exciting. If you think about it, the planets are super rare, and you live in a galaxy that's 100,000 light years across, like we do. And if there was our solar system and, say, only one other in the entire galaxy, you would expect it to be a long way off, 50,000 light years, 20, 30, 80, something like that. The fact of the matter is we are finding planets around nearby stars, Barnard star, which is six light years away. Proxima Centauri, which is four light years away. And what this is implying very strongly is that planets like this are everywhere. And this is something we've known for a while. We, every star, we, you know, when we look at a lot of stars, we see a lot of planets. But this is sort of um, another way of confirming that, yeah, the galaxy is filled with planets. And I guess the way you're going to find a planet orbiting like Barnard's star is how it makes the star appear to shift in space. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to, to look for planets, and the most successful one, and the one that's been employed by, for example, NASA's Kepler telescope and uh, another one called TESS, which is now up and observing the sky, is if a planet is orbiting a star and you're seeing that planet orbit edge on, so you're seeing basically it looks like a line going back and forth, 
sometimes it'll pass directly in front of the star, and the star dims, and you can tell a lot about the planet from that dimming. It's like a mini-eclipse. Well, that's one way. Another way is that as the planet orbits the star, uh, the, the planet's making sort of a big circle or a big ellipse around the star. But the planet has gravity, too, and it tugs on the star, and the star makes a little circle or ellipse in response to the gravity of the planet. This is incredibly difficult to measure. But if the geometry is right, as the star moves toward you and moves away from you a little bit as it's making this little circle, it undergoes a Doppler shift. The light literally changes color. It's a little, little tiny bit. This is the same sort of effect as if you're standing by the side of a road and a motorcycle goes by and it goes, Uh the pitch of the motorcycle engine is, is raised up as it approaches you and drops when it passes. The same thing with light. If an object's approaching you, the pitch of the light, the color, goes up. It goes to, towards the blue. And when it passes you, or in this case with a star, when it's moving away from you, the light is redshifted. It goes to a lower pitch. It's kind of like sound. It's similar. You can think of it that way. Well, this is a really, really difficult thing to measure. You need extraordinarily detailed observations. And so these astronomers have been using observations from as far back as 1997 with a bunch of different telescopes. And they were able to measure the motion of the star moving around in its little circle out there six light years away as this planet orbits it. And it's not much. It's a very, very, very tiny effect. But over all these years, they were able to build up enough of uh, a database to show that, yeah, it really is there. It's pretty cool. Sure is. Out there in, in space, it seems as though there's sort of a an astronomic zoo that we're still trying to work with. I mean, as we mentioned before, is it a planet? Is it a brown dwarf? Sometimes we wonder, is this an asteroid? Is this a comet? NASA currently has a spacecraft that's in the vicinity of this asteroid, Ben, and it's going to bring back some chunks of it. You, you must find that quite interesting. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm loving all this. This is the, the year of the asteroid. Japanese have a, a mission to uh, a very tiny asteroid called Ryugu, and NASA has a mission to another tiny asteroid called Bennu. Uh, the NASA mission is called OSIRIS-REx, and it's this horrible acronym, which basically just means that it's studying this asteroid um, because it's a near-Earth asteroid. It's one that actually has an orbit pretty similar to ours. It actually crosses the Earth's orbit, and that makes it a potentially hazardous asteroid. Bennu is something like 550 meters across in standard units, like less than half a mile, but not much less. Yeah. And it gets close enough to the Earth that over hundreds of years, it could hit us, and that would be catastrophic. Mm. Now, there's no predicted impact for at least something like 150 years, and even then it's a really, really tiny chance. Uh-huh. But this is a chance to study one of these objects up close. And so OSIRIS-REx is just now entering the vicinity of this asteroid, just the other day, basically caught up to it in its orbit, and will now drop down toward it, map it, survey it, and when it finds a nice spot on the surface, it's basically going to go up really close to it, extend an arm, grab a bunch of material, put it back onto the spacecraft, and then come back to Earth in 2023. And then we'll be able to study bits of this asteroid in our lab. Very cool. We want to note for our listeners that Bennu, the asteroid, is not to be confused with Nibiru, which is this hypothetical rogue planet spun smack into the Earth. And talk about bad astronomy. I have to, I have to pick your brain on this one. Yeah, I wouldn't call it hypothetical. I would call it nonsense. Uh, the, the difference between Bennu and Nibiru is that, you know, Bennu exists. Yeah, Nibiru comes up every now and again. It's, it's this I- idea that there's another planet out in the solar system on a long elliptical orbit 
and it periodically drops down into the inner solar system, creating havoc. And this idea has been around, oh, at least since the 1950s with Velikovsky. Emmanuel Velikovsky was this guy who theorized about it. Yeah. And he, he tried to basically match ancient records, including the Bible, things that happened that the, the people reported about, to actual real astronomical events. And the problem is his astronomy is terrible, and his, <laughs> his uh, archaeological interpretation is worse. Uh, everything, everything he wrote about was just nonsense. Worlds in Collision, that was Nibiru. Well, yeah, over the years, yeah. this, this idea, he, he called it the 12th planet for uh -huh. various reasons due to uh, Babylonian mythology. But over the years, this, this idea has been uh, tortured and twisted even more, <laughs> um, picked up by different people. It never seems to go away. The bottom line is that it, it can't exist. It literally cannot. If you had a planet like this, um, A, we would have seen it. Yeah, right. Because they're talking about something really big that gets close enough to spot. And the other thing is that if it came into the early sol into the inner solar system, we'd see these effects. It would disturb the orbits of all the inner planets. The inner planets basically wouldn't be here if you had a giant planet. I mean, we're talking about something bigger than Jupiter here, sweeping into the inner solar system. It, it would basically be like, you know, uh, detonating a, a stick of TNT in a china shop and then walking in and miraculously everything's fine. But no, it's not like that. Everything's destroyed. That's what it would be like. Well, it's something that certainly straddles the border between good and, and interesting astronomy and, and perhaps some very bad is this this new object that was discovered they've labeled Woomuamua I guess it's because of its trajectory we know that it came out from somewhere else and whipped by our sun uh, some months back but somehow some astronomers at, at, at Harvard were saying well maybe this thing is an alien spacecraft and I have to get your comments on that. Oh I'm very conflicted about this paper this is a really really interesting object and it, it's it's um, name is and I'm going to try to do this right, Oumuamua. It's a Hawaiian word, and my Hawaiian is not that great. But there's sort of a glottal stop in the, in the beginning of it that I can't do very well. But it, it literally translates into very first scout. That is what that word means. Because when it was first discovered, it was on an unusual orbit, and then it didn't take very long to realize this object is more than unusual. It's coming from interstellar space. This is not something that started really far out from the sun but orbiting the sun, and we're just seeing it drop down for the first time. No, this thing has so much speed, it literally is coming from another star. It is the first true interstellar object ever seen passing through the solar system. So, full area of excitement, everybody's trying to observe it. The problem is it wasn't discovered until it was already on its way out, so it was getting fainter with time. That makes it really difficult to observe. And it was was weird. Um, it... it, it uh, was changing its brightness um, by quite a bit, a factor of six. So as you would observe it over time, it would get bright and faint and bright and faint. And it was six times brighter when it was at its brightest than when it was at its faintest. And that's really weird. What's causing that? So they were speculating that it's a very long, cigar-like object. It's tumbling end over end. And when we're seeing it sort of from the side, it looks bright because we're seeing a lot of its area reflecting light to us. And when we're seeing it sort of sort of, you know, nose on, it looks dimmer because we're not seeing as much area from it. Well, maybe, that's interesting, but we've never seen an object that elongated in the solar system before. So it's like, okay, this thing's interstellar. It's really weirdly shaped. How many more weird things can it be? And it turns out, well, <laughs> over time, it wasn't slowing down as much as you'd expect, right? This thing is heading away from the sun. The sun's gravity is pulling on it. So it's moving rapidly, but it's slowing as it's going away from us. 
it's not going to slow enough that it's going to stop. It's, it's gone. It's on its way out. But it wasn't slowing as much as we were expecting. And so some people were speculating that maybe it's got ice or something on the surface. When it got near the sun, that ice warmed up, turned into a gas, blew off the surface. And this was giving this thing a very gentle push so that it was sort of accelerating it more than you'd expect. Okay, maybe that makes sense. But a couple of astronomers at Harvard said that this acceleration, this, this change in its speed that, that we weren't expecting, could be explained if instead of this thing being a cigar shape, if it's actually very, very flat and thin, if it's more like a sheet, like, a, uh, like, like literally a sheet flapping in the wind, and then it's catching the sun's light, and that's what's actually giving it this extra push. The sunlight gives a pressure to this thing, and that's going to accelerate it. Well, that's all well and good, and they make their case, and that's fine, but then they kind of very coyly speculate that this is what you expect from a spaceship. There is a type of spaceship called a light sail, very, very, very thin, very highly reflected, that catches sunlight, and you can use this to move a spaceship around. And so I, I got the impression it's a little tongue-in-cheek in the paper, <laughs> but they're kind of coyly saying, we're not saying it's a spaceship. But, and I actually found their arguments to be fairly weak in that case. I mean, I know that a lot of people are talking about a solar sail. The Planetary Society is quite interested in yeah. that. And it's a viable way to, 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 to basically surf our way out uh, using, using solar energy. But it's hard to believe that you would you'd use that method to go from one star system to another. It sounds kind of weird, at, you know, at first blush, that you can create something like a sail and use sunlight to push yourself from one star to the other. But it turns out it actually works. If you make a sail really, really big, I mean mm -hmm. miles across, you can actually accelerate very rapidly. You can get up to a significant fraction of the speed of light, 10%, something like that. So you could go from the Earth to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, in 40 or 50 years. That's not a long time for that huge of a distance. And then when you get there, you can just sail through that system, or you can use your sail to slow you down by basically heading right toward the star, ramming it, kind of, and, uh, you know, tacking into the wind, I guess you could say. And that would slow you down a lot. You could then investigate the system. So it actually works. The problem here is scale. With um, Oumuamua, even the astronomers who talk about this thing possibly being a light sail, if it were, it would only be 50 yards across, right? Smaller than a right, football field. Right. And that doesn't make any sense. You, yeah. you want to make a solar sail really, really, really big so that you can catch as much sunlight as possible. So that's like strike one. Strike two is that change in brightness. If this thing is tumbling, then it's not going to make a very good solar sail. Yeah, right? You right, want the solar right. sail always to be facing yeah. your star. Yeah. So if it's tumbling, it doesn't make a good solar sail, and if it doesn't make a good solar sail, it won't have that weird acceleration. And if it doesn't have that weird acceleration, you don't have to postulate that it's a solar sail in the first place. Um, this is like a detective story with no crime in that sense. So that's why I don't really think that this thing is artificial. I think this is a natural object. It's just really, really weird. We take a short break here. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Our talk with Phil Plate will continue after just a moment. 